Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sample Size. The only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your other host, Wildcard Cameron. So, Sam, what's in the news this week? Well, this week, we're going to discuss two stories related to the opioid crisis in the U.S. Cool. What's the opioid crisis in the U.S.? <laughs> I'm glad you phrased it that way because I do actually have a sentence of what is the opioid crisis. <laughs> that was the, not planned. But, like, but, 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 but in the U.S. Yes, in, in the U.S. In the U.S. In the United States. All right. Well, so to explain the opioid crisis to those of you who do not know, the U.S. has seen a huge increase in opioid addiction and deaths over the past two decades. According to the U.S. Congress, nearly 450,000 lives have been lost in the U.S. to the wider opioid epidemic. So today we're going to talk about two stories related to the opioid crisis. The first about a county in Indiana stopping their needle exchange program and the second about Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy settlement. Okay, so I like know a little bit about some of that. I've heard these words before. I'm familiar with the words Purdue. Wait, am I thinking of Purdue chicken? Is that a thing? Are you actually Purdue farm? Wait, no. Is it Purdue farms? Yeah, Purdue is a chicken company, I think. And also a university. Yes. Okay. None of those are related to the pharmaceutical company. This, this, is, all, this is all set up so that you know that I am truly a buffoon and I am going to lead you through this. If I understand it, then you will surely understand it. All right, let's go. Okay. So, oh, I do want to give a quick update before we get to those stories. So there's an update on coronavirus vaccines. The Biden administration actually recently announced that the U.S. will be donating excess COVID vaccines to the United Nations-backed COVAX program, which gives a vaccine to countries that need them. So I'm going to say that our podcast did it and we convinced Biden to give away those extra vaccines. Good job, Johnny B. Good job, Jay Bizzle. You came through for us. I knew you were an avid listener of this podcast, and now I have empirical evidence that no one can refuse. <laughs> yes, but but in all seriousness, I am really excited that the U.S. will be donating those extra vaccines. It's the bare minimum. All right, now let's get into how we're failing to do the bare minimum over the opioid crisis. <laughs> all right. First, we'll talk about Indiana and their needle exchange program. So Scott County, Indiana, will be ending its needle exchange program at the end of this year. The Scott County commissioners voted two to one on June 2nd to end the program, which started back in 2015. So this program works by allowing intravenous drug users a place to pick up clean syringes and drop off used ones. So the clinic where the needle exchange is also provides testing for HIV, Hep C, and various STDs and helps connect people to health insurance, housing, and recovery opportunities. I feel like there's like a long series of dominoes you have to follow to understand why needle exchange is so important as part of the opioid crisis, which is opioids like morphine and other, like, are they muscle relaxants? Painkillers? They're like, painkillers, but yeah. Okay. See, I don't know. <laughs> but what I do know is that they're addictive and they're often prescribed for things like back pain. There's a whole bunch of reasons why a doctor might legitimately or illegitimately prescribe them, but effectively when users of these legitimate medicines can no longer get their prescriptions filled, they may turn to drugs like heroin. Mm -hmm. And the way you do heroin is by injecting it into your body. And if people share needles, then they not only might get ill from any number of things that might be on that needle, but they can also, any disease that's communicable through blood can be basically spread through the use of these needles and have knock-on effects that affect the community, right? Yes. You, man, you nailed 
bit right on the head because this needle exchange program started because this small county in Indiana saw a surge in HIV cases. So back in 2015, HIV cases in the county went from just a few cases to 237 cases. And this is a county that has a population of only 24,000. So it was a massive spike. Like this got media attention because of this spike in HIV cases that was in this tiny county in Indiana. Yeah, it's disproportionately affecting. I mean, it's been disproportionately affecting a lot of small communities, especially in middle America. Mm -hmm. I understand the opioid crisis has been doing that just because the news always talks about when they talk. It's like the news only has like five talking points about the opioid crisis and no solutions. So pretty much. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get to discuss some actual solutions here. But unfortunately, it sounds like a needle exchange program is a good thing. And as a function of a needle exchange program, you're also exposing people to like when I go to exchange my needle, I am also interacting with people who could give me access to more resources or help me get clean. And this is like a real stigma problem where like I want to get clean, but also people know that I do a drug. And so it's hard for me to seek help or want to seek help without being stigmatized. Yes, there have been several studies, papers, scientific inquiries into whether needle exchange programs work. And yes, they do tend to work. And that's the idea is that one, they work by not spreading these diseases that happen from sharing needles because you are providing someone with access to clean needles. And also the person coming, it's just a way to get a person in the door of they're getting the needles, but they're also getting help. Like they're getting help for things that may be a reason why they're addicted beyond like the physicalness of addiction, like housing and stuff, but also like just help with addiction symptoms or maybe Narcan, like all of those things. Like if we weren't such a science oriented podcast, if we were a podcast willing to be petty and call out politicians directly, we might go into depth about how (laughs) politicians usually mischaracterize the opioid epidemic as an excuse to get funding for all sorts of other things that really have nothing to do with the opioid epidemic by suggesting that this abstract thing will solve the complex problem that is the opioid crisis, not just in terms of the biological reasons you might need a painkiller like an opioid, but also the psychological and life circumstances that go into pushing someone into the space. Mm-hmm. Oh, and for context of did the needle exchange program in this county work as far as HIV cases? Well, in the three years after the program was introduced, sharing needles dropped from 74% to 22%. In cases of HIV and hepatitis C dropped with the county having only one new case of HIV in 2020. That's amazing. I feel bad for that one person. Yeah. <laughs> There's one person. I mean, it's like it's anonymous. No one knows who that one. I mean, well, healthcare workers do, but like it's it isn't like this one person is actually being singled out. But yeah, it's kind of funny to be like there was only one new case. I don't know why. I just imagine my head like everyone looking over and is like Dave. <laughs> You're the only one of us with health insurance. You're the only one who goes to the hospital. <laughs> okay. Also, that's, that's clearly that's sexist happen. of you to assume it was Dave. It could be Karen. <laughs> We need gender neutral name. What's mm-hmm. the- <laughs> Unfortunately, Cameron and, and Sam are both gender neutral names. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we did this to ourselves. Oh, all right. <laughs> so back to the story. Is, you are laughing way too much for how serious this actually is. I, know. I feel like we're doing a terrible job I'm of sorry. explaining the gravity of the situation. I'm sorry, all everyone. Right, reset. We're we're upset, and we need to make Middle America better again. Go. So, Cameron, I'm sure you're wondering if this program works. 
why are they ending it? I was wondering that. I literally said that. So yes, why would you? <laughs> why would you take something? What is with Americans and like we have a good idea and we have a thing that's working just fine. Let's undo it. Control Z that stuff right now. Yes, it's a little more complex than how you lead on. Really, I've I've somehow trivialized an incredibly complex topic <laughs> again on this podcast. All right. Well, let me explain. Two of the Scott County commissioners think it's promoting opioid use and cause a rise in overdoses despite reducing other diseases. So let me read you some quotes from the commissioners. This is from Commissioner Mike Jones. Quote, I know people who are alcoholics and I don't buy them a bottle of whiskey. And I know people who want to kill themselves and I don't buy them a bullet for their gun. And this is from Commissioner Randy Julian. Quote, with proper care, people can live with HIV and hepatitis. They can't come back from death. If they would have overdosed anyway, then I didn't help them do it. But the science, the thing that politics Politicians might want to focus on strongly suggests that they have objectively helped, if not only cut down on the number of STDs, which have a stigma that might lead someone to think suicide's a good option, to the fact that people are not ODing as much or at all. And let me get into that. So wait, wait, I, I really need to gripe on something here. I don't buy a bullet for their gun. They have a gun. They can probably buy their own bullets just fine. Bullets are amazingly not that expensive. <laughs> I cannot stand it when lawmakers create such dumb freaking terminology to get their point across. Like, that is so stupid. All right. All right, Cameron. <laughs> okay. I will. We may return to being upset about the actual thing that matters here. Okay, but Cameron posed a question, or he said a statement of, you know, the program reduced overdoses, right? Well, that's where it's complex. So oh, darn it. So Scott County's drug poisoning deaths fell from 21 in 2016, which is the year after this needle exchange program started, to eight in 2019. However, it then jumped to 24 last year. Last year being when we were all stuck inside with nothing to do? Yeah, you got it right. So health experts think that the increase may reflect the nationwide increases in overdoses last year because of the pandemic and poor access to treatment. So for some context, there were more than 80,000 drug overdose deaths in the U.S. from May to December 2020, according to the CDC. And that was breaking records. I think that's an important metric is when you look at the national average and even the local average, it was clear that this program had a continued sustained beneficial impact on overall drug deaths and overdoses in the in that county. But saying that it went up last year is ignoring that it went up everywhere last year. Mm -hmm. And so that's I mean, this is always a problem with data, right? This is like the whole point of why we wanted to well, why you always were so adamant about the show It's like it's so easy to look at a chart and be like, oh, no, a bad thing. But Obviously, you no data is by itself. All data is in the context of everything around it. Yeah, and it's it's just the basic difference between a count and a mean or an average. Like a count can seem really impressive on its own, but if you take the average of it, so the context of it in the entire population, that could be n no increase really. It could be the same, or it could have been a decrease, or like it's just I don't know. It's all in context. You could have a misleading sample size. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha. 
There it is. There's there's your plug for the episode. Uh, all right. So I do want to point out that the commissioners voted to end the needle exchange program, but they still want to keep in place the treatment facility and counseling services. However, health officials are worried that people won't be motivated to come to the facilities without the needle exchange program being there. Yeah. And the fact that it's a county and commissioners usually speaks to like when we think of like all these problems, like I'm trying to make an argument here about government as a whole. Yeah. Because this is the thing that I feel like is always lost in these stories is a council is usually a few people who might actually have two jobs. Like it's not like being a senator. You are not making enough of a salary for that to be your full time job. And so sometimes counselors will be advised on things or choose to do things or just legitimately not have any of the background to be able to make a meaningful decision on something like this. So as much as I really want to rag on the counselors for being like, if the program's working, why are you getting rid of it? Like it feels like flawed anecdotal logic as opposed to like real scientific logic. But at the same time, it's a this is like no longer really a science argument at that point. On that scale, it's a human argument. Yeah. And I couldn't find why the commissioners like really wanted to end this program. Like what was their motivation for it? I I understand from the quotes and from the articles I read that their thinking was that, oh, this program isn't actually helping as far as addiction goes and like overdoses go. So why have it? Like maybe it's hurting things. But I, I don't actually know what the initiating factor was that put them like like that put that on their radar of why they wanted to end it. Because I also read that when they were discussing this issue in the like town hall or whatever it would be called in their local county of whatever that was, that there were a lot of people in support for the needle exchange program, but not that many people like against it and a wide range of people in support, not just like health experts. There were also like police officers that are supporting it because they have to deal with overdoses and stuff. And so they were like, no, this is helping things. It's almost like you put if you put people in a better way to control their addiction, you put less cops in life threatening situations where they have to respond to an incident that they probably shouldn't be the specific department responding to that has to do with people who are behaving unexpectedly because they're overdosing or around other people who are high on some sort of drug. Crazy how that works. (laughs) I will say the fact that you don't know speaks to the scale of the people doing it and why this is like such a hard thing to deal with at the county level because Mm -hmm. it's just some dudes and maybe dudettes. I don't know. Yes. Let's put a plug in for local politics I'd, and I'd actually, being involved in local politics. I'd actually <laughs> ask, like, seriously, anyone listening to this episode, if you know anything about this or, like, maybe you're even in that county or whatever, if you if you could tell us on, like, Twitter or some other way, I think you can direct e- messages. Email. Email, maybe? Do we have an email that people can get at? Yes. What is it? Sample size show at gmail.com. All right. Well, you can email at us and let us know. Let us know the stuff that we're missing here. All right. And just to wrap things up, really only time will tell how ending the program will affect the county. I'm worried it won't be good and that there will again be a rise in diseases from needle sharing. We'll see. Yeah, I would would agree with that. I feel like I cut you off and I'm sorry. That's okay. But we have another story, a pretty interesting story about law and settlements and money. Yes, this next story is about the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy settlement that was just released and also about the Sackler family. So listeners, you may or may not remember from way back in the day in the news that Purdue Pharma made an aggressively marketed and sold the drug OxyContin, which contributed greatly to the opioid crisis in the U.S. So Purdue Pharma has made more than $30 billion since selling OxyContin in 1996, and the Sackler family personally made about $1.3 billion 
from 1995 to 2007 and $10.7 from 2008 to 2017. And in the years after OxyContin started selling, prescription opioid overdose deaths more than quadrupled from 1999 to 2019, according to the CDC. You may have seen some of the Sackler's many works as museums because they've, this is like a known strategy of theirs. They basically fund the arts to help divert or at least soften the blow from the fact that they are directly responsible for the opioid crisis. Yes. Like we are, what, not two or three miles from the Freer Sackler Gallery in D.C. Like, But we they can, got renamed. I don't think that changes the fact that this is like <laughs> when you go to the British Museum is like, wow, look at all this history that you stole. <laughs> The Egyptians didn't willingly give you any of these statues. Okay, well, in recent years, the company Purdue Pharma has received major backlash. Let me tell you some about that. In 2007, the company pleaded guilty in federal court to failing to tell doctors that OxyContin is stronger than morphine, despite knowing the risks for addiction. And in 2020, the company pleaded guilty to federal charges about marketing its opioid products to doctors who were suspected of illegally prescribing and abusing OxyContin. And they admitted to paying doctors to give out opioid prescriptions. So they've also had to deal with thousands of lawsuits related to their involvement in the opioid crisis, including lawsuits from 24 state attorneys generals. And they were served so many lawsuits that in 2019, the company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy to settle everything. So here's where we get to the story now. (laughs) I just gave you all that background. So now we can focus on the actual story that came out recently. I love history lessons. (laughs) On June 2nd, the federal bankruptcy judge in New York overseeing the case allowed Purdue Pharma to begin soliciting support for its Chapter 11 reorganization plan. So that basically means the judge told Purdue Pharma, okay, here's the plan we're going to go forward with. If the creditors in charge say they agree to it, then it'll be a done deal. Is this where we also need a mini lesson on Chapter 7 versus 11 bankruptcy? Do we need a mini lesson, Cameron? So as if last week tonight and probably like eight other YouTube channels and shows haven't talked enough about bankruptcy, Chapter 7 bankruptcy is what you think of as like personal bankruptcy usually requires, it doesn't require a repayment plan, but it does require you to liquidate assets that are not exempt from the bankruptcy. And this is stuff that typically applies to people who have taken on too much debt that is not student loan debt because student loan debt is its own separate terrible thing. (laughs) Whereas chapter 11 bankruptcy is business reorganization plan. So this is selling off assets to benefit specific investors and creditors who usually have priority based on the amount of the investment, which means that if you are a small-time lender, this is usually why people who put in a little bit of change, which to them might not be a little bit of money, but overall to the size of the business might be a small portion of the business overall value, rarely see anything as a result of bankruptcy because they're so low on the totem pole. Okay. There's also chapter 13 bankruptcy, which is a whole like separate thing about eliminating qualified debt through a repayment plan over a three or five year period. I think that's also for people. Yeah. Is that the type of bankruptcy that it's like kind of the scammy bankruptcy? <laughs> yes. Yeah, Sort of like, yeah, chapter 13 bankruptcy is kind of saying instead of completely wiping out your debt, you're basically promising to pay back a debt you already couldn't pay back over a slightly different period of time. Yes. Yes. And then a lot of people may end up failing that and then having to go basically start again and then go to the other bankruptcy. I Which think is that's double okay. sucky because it, it double destroys any wealth you have. All right. Cameron's economic tangent over. But that was good. So now that we understand bankruptcy more, do you want to hear some of the details of this plan? Yeah, who's who's getting the wave runner? But they inevitably <laughs> they probably have like six wave runners for oh wooing executives. Okay, well the plan would dissolve the drug company and reestablish it as a public trust, deliver over 
$10 billion in value to communities ravaged by the opioid epidemic and provide millions of doses of opioid addiction treatment and overdose reversal medications. The plan would also make the Sackler family contribute over $4.2 billion of their personal money over nine years to go toward the different lawsuit settlements and force the Sackler family to have no more involvement in the new Purdue Pharma company. Ooh, I love see that. I love seeing big people with too much money having their money taken away painfully to pay for the problems they caused. (laughs) Ah, but here is the catch, Cameron. It would also make the Sackler family immune from any future lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. Bastards. Because you just told us they made well over $4 billion from all of this. $4 billion is like, it probably hurts, but like they're billionaires. Oh, yeah. They made $11.8 billion in, from 2008 to 2017. Oh, $10.7 billion. I'm sorry. Like, I upped it a billion. Let, let me explain to you. Let me try and quantify to you how much a billion is. The average listener, in fact, I'm willing to bet almost all listeners except for maybe Joe Biden. <laughs> If you took all the wealth you ever will have and that your family has had and then they're like going back generation by generation and piled it all together, it probably would not come close to a billion dollars. And they have multiple of those. So I want it to hurt. Oh, yeah, that's oh, that's really sad to think of. Yeah, like like they've taken they've gotten billions of dollars from people whose generational wealth will never get close to a billion dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's. Wow, that's good to put in context. Yeah, and the worst part is they want immunity. Like, I I know it's a case of, like, I can't be held responsible for everything someone in my family's done. Like, if you're related to someone who sucks, <laughs> you probably don't want to be remembered as the person related to someone who sucks. You want to be remembered as your own person. Yeah. But if all your money came from something sucky, you kind of, there, there's a little bit of the uh, maybe you should still pay it forward by paying it back to the people whose lives you destroyed. Yeah, so a lot of attorneys generals are not happy about that clause. Here's an example. I'll read you a quote from Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Healy. Quote, the bankruptcy system should not be allowed to shield non-bankrupt billionaires. It would set a terrible precedent. If the Sacklers are allowed to use bankruptcy to escape the consequences of their actions, it would be a roadmap for other powerful bad actors. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Every time, that's the worst thing about like laws like this, stuff that's brand new like this, Mm -hmm. is once you set a precedent, it's really easy for other people to just point to that precedent and continue on from it. I mean, that's how we've gotten some of the crappiest things that have happened throughout U.S. legal history. Yeah, and I don't know if that works as much in other countries. That definitely works in the U.S. It seems to be if something has happened before in a legal case, then you can be argued that it should happen again kind of forever because that's precedent. That's like, it's just, I don't know, that's a weird quirk of U.S. legal law or maybe just legal law in general. I mean, in legal law in general, is built a lot on precedent. If you've if you have a similar situation that's happened before and there's a specific ruling, a lot of judges, in the hope to not completely redefine how the law should be read, mm-hmm. will fall back on that one. But what's funny is how all of this is a function of America's own wacky, weird legal and regulatory space. I mean, the opioid crisis is equal parts a function of pushing drugs, but it's also a function of the way that companies in the United States are allowed to advertise either directly to patients or through doctors to patients to have doctors 
specifically promote their drug, especially when those drugs often have nothing to do with the specific symptoms. It's it's like a lot of this would be solved if we had universal health care and didn't have money in our health care system. Huh. I don't see it. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at the same picture as you. I don't see it at all. No, that's that's a huge thing. And lots of doctors pride themselves on basically never taking meetings with anyone from a pharmaceutical company, mm-hmm. despite the free sandwiches. It really is a certain quirk in the U.S. because pharmaceutical companies will, they'll just give doctors and dentists even like different perks and stuff to incentivize them to sell their drugs or to or to prescribe their drugs. And you can think, oh, well, some of it's a good thing because like, oh, the representatives are there to like explain this new medication and all that and to advise them, the people of it. But also it's just like an obvious sell tactic. Yeah. And I want to, I have no proof that this has happened. And yet in my heart, I feel like this has definitely happened. Ooh, okay. What are you about to say? Whole counties have been ravaged by the opioid crisis for basically the cost of a lunch. Like you just go into a doctor's office and offer them free meals and tell them to push your product. And obviously the incentives have gone beyond just, you know, lunch. But it's often the like smallest little packages and benefits helping motivate doctors to overprescribe something they definitely didn't need to be prescribing and has huge knock-on effects and also produces huge profits for these companies. Well, and I also want to point out, as I said before, one thing the Sackler family has been convicted of charges for is not properly telling doctors how addictive Oxycontin is because they were misleading a lot of people and being like, oh, it's fine. You can just prescribe as many as you want. And that's why we have a heroin problem. Like, that's why we have an opioid crisis is because you prescribed a ton of this medicine onto people and got them addicted. And then at a certain point in the U.S., we had laws saying you can't prescribe this much opioid medication because we recognize this was a problem. However, that then led to this whole underground market. There's also a problem here where it's like doctors are always seen as being this like they are the people who would know what's best for you as an individual. And I feel like the opioid crisis in a real like pulling back the curtain way has shown us they really aren't. This is not to say a doctor is underqualified or incapable, but when it comes to like doctors don't have time to investigate every little thing. Like you'd want to be able to tell people, well, why would a doctor recommend something they don't know what the side effects are on? It's like probably because the only company that could have told them the side effects lied. Yeah, that too. And and really, if you want to get into history of medicine in the U.S., opioids go back all the way, like... 1800s, I want to say, of like the very first stuff that was being prescribed to people. And then it was just a constant evolution of, oh, a new drug will come out. That would be the thing. Oh, a new one will come out. Like morphine was the one before all the other stuff. And so it's just a continuous cycle. And then, you know, we stopped prescribing opioids as much. And now we have a ton of people addicted. Also, like colonialism is basically built on opioid crisis. I mean, how can you get your tea from China? Opioid wars. (laughs) This is a very real part of history, and we've seen this happen plenty of times. You're 100% right. Oh, one more thing I want to add to this story is the Sackler family has continued to say that they're innocent in all of this. And actually, a branch of the family descended from Raymond Sackler, who is one of the brothers who owned Purdue Pharma, created a website recently located at judgeforyourselves.info that claims the family is a victim of a smear campaign and that they acted lawfully and ethically. Yeah, I disagree. It's probably easy for me as a not a billionaire to disagree with them. But what I would say is I don't think you're understanding the point. It's not really whether or not your family is in the wrong. It's the fact that you guys have billions of dollars that you will you definitely don't need. And that money should be and could be better spent helping the people who your company and the money that fund your trust have just been destroyed. Exactly. Like 
like it's it's one of those things where when you're being slandered, it's easy to play victim. And honestly, I don't know a lot about this person or life circumstances of whoever created this website or their genealogical tree. But if you are literally benefiting from billions of dollars, it's billions. I just went over why billions of dollars is such a huge number. You can do without billions. Mm -hmm. You can afford one less comma in your net wealth. (laughs) Okay, yeah. And I really just want to end saying that I think the Sackler family being shielded from further lawsuits is bad. Like, it just feels like rich families yet again can make money in terrible ways and then face minor consequences for it. However, I am also really excited for this bankruptcy settlement to go through because the money from it will definitely help the individuals and organizations affected by this crisis. And there was one thing that I didn't mention is that Purdue Pharma will have to create an online repository for more than 13 million documents related to the marketing and selling of their opioids. So it's going to be the new tobacco company settlement. And I'm excited to see all the stuff we find out from this. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge thing that shout out to my friend Adam, who were talking in the car the other day about how these kinds of settlements, big settlements where one company can to a degree be claimed as negligent to the point where it affects entire communities, if not states. Mm-hmm. as being responsible and needing to pay up for the cost of rectifying that problem. In terms of climate change, like how might this have knock-on effects for how we prosecute companies that knew full well that the ongoing burning of fossil fuels or whatever directly led to climate change that's impacting cities? This is what Baltimore is doing with Shell. And while I understand some of it might be just to get stuff in discovery, there are lots of companies, huge companies on the stock market right now that are not much better than Purdue. Mm-hmm. And so I would be very curious to see how this has a knock-on effect for those companies. Yes. And a final confirmation hearing is set for August 9th. So we'll have to wait till then to see if this plan goes through. I don't know why I kept saying knock on effect this whole video, but I apologize to everyone listening. And what's a knock on effect? It's literally when something happens and it has a cascading effect to something else. Oh, okay. So like having the opioid crisis leads to heroin addiction, which leads to further destruction of a community. Like the domino pizza is falling. Yes. Like Domino's pizza. When you order Domino's pizza, you know, you're going to feel sad later that night. It has a knock on effect. All right. And on that note, I think we should end the podcast. (laughs) So I feel like there's probably a lot of very useful, meaningful sources people can go check out, especially if they want to figure out what those council members were saying so they can correct us on it. Where should they look for those? They should look in the show notes where all of my sources are. And please, if you like the episode, if you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it or just let us know that you're enjoying it. And also show them how to subscribe because the other day I had to show my friends how to subscribe to podcasts because for some reason we live in the year 2021 and people don't (laughs) A, about podcasts, and B, how to subscribe to them. I thought that was wild. (laughs) Also, thank you, as always, to Scott for being an awesome editor, making me sound good, making Sam sound good, and just, he's, seriously, if you need help with your audio project idea, whatever, I'd seriously consider getting in touch with him. Yes, and everyone, if you have an idea or a story you want us to cover and talk about, please reach out to us at Twitter or at our email. The information is in the show notes. You know, we love to hear from you guys. We are very accessible influencers. You can find all my links or probably my link tree somewhere in the show notes. So you can, even if you just want to yell at how dumb I am on this podcast, (laughs) you can do that too. Till then, please do take care of yourself if you can get vaccinated or convince someone else to get vaccinated. Please do. And we'll see you in the next one. Bye everyone. Bye.